Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This week, I couldn't stop thinking about one of the most memorable lessons I ever learned from John Maxwell. It was titled, Leading Where No One Has Gone Before. I decided to do my own version of this lesson, but I've changed the title to Leading Where You Have Never Gone Before. This is something that I think is essential for everyone. So let's dive in and see what we can learn. In preparing for this, I watched a number of TED Talks on leadership. Most of them centered on why our leaders are so bad, as though it's a foregone assumption that they must be. One's even called, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? It's actually an excellent TED Talk if you want to listen to it. At the root of the problem is the fact that we're generally more attracted to an incompetent narcissist than we are to someone who's humble and competent. As more women are moving into leadership positions, the ones who get these positions tend to resemble their male counterparts and are themselves incompetent narcissists. Just look at politics, and you can easily see that this is true. After watching a few of these talks, I was left feeling a bit depressed, realizing that being a good leader will almost guarantee you won't get the job in favor of some incompetent narcissist. That only made me more convinced that I needed to follow through with talking about this today. To introduce the topic of leading where you haven't gone before, I'd like to read to you this brief synopsis from History.com about the expedition of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. The Lewis and Clark expedition began in 1804 when President Thomas Jefferson tasked Meriwether Lewis with exploring lands west of the Mississippi River that comprised the Louisiana Purchase. Lewis chose William Clark as his co-leader for the mission. The excursion lasted over two years. Along the way, they confronted harsh weather, unforgiving terrain, treacherous waters, injuries, starvation, disease, and both friendly and hostile Native Americans. Nevertheless, the approximately 8,000-mile journey was deemed a huge success and provided new geographic, ecological, and social information about previously uncharted areas of North America. Meriwether Lewis was born in Virginia in 1774, but spent his early childhood in Georgia. He returned to Virginia as a teenager to receive his education and graduated from college in 1793. He then joined the Virginia State Militia, where he helped to put down the Whiskey Rebellion and later became a captain in the U.S. Army. At age 27, he became personal secretary to President Thomas Jefferson. William Clark was born in Virginia in 1770, but moved with his family to Kentucky at age 15. At age 19, he joined the state militia and then the regular army, where he served with Lewis and was eventually commissioned by President George Washington as a lieutenant of infantry. In 1796, Clark returned home to manage his family's estate. Seven years later, Lewis chose him to embark on an epic excursion that would help shape America's history. During the French and Indian War, France surrendered a large part of Louisiana to Spain and almost all of its remaining lands to Great Britain. Initially, Spain's acquisition didn't have a major impact since it still allowed the United States to travel the Mississippi River and use New Orleans as a trade port. Then Napoleon Bonaparte took power in France in 1799 and wanted to regain France's former territory in the United States. In 1802, King Charles IV of Spain returned the Louisiana Territory to France and revoked America's port access. In 1803, under the threat of war, President Jefferson and James Monroe successfully negotiated a deal with France to purchase the Louisiana Territory, which included about 827,000 square miles for $15 million. Even before negotiations with France were finished, 
Jefferson asked Congress to finance an expedition to survey the lands of the so-called Louisiana Purchase and appointed Lewis as expedition commander. Lewis knew that exploring the Louisiana Territory would be no small task and began preparations immediately. He studied medicine, botany, astronomy, and zoology, and scrutinized existing maps and journals of the region. He also asked his friend Clark to co-command the expedition. Even though Clark was once Lewis's superior, Lewis was technically in charge of the trip. But for all intents and purposes, the two shared equal responsibility. On July 5, 1803, Lewis visited the arsenal at Harper's Ferry to obtain munitions. He then rode a custom-made 55-foot keelboat, also called the boat or the barge, down the Ohio River and joined Clark in Clarksville, Indiana. From there, Clark took the boat up the Mississippi River while Lewis continued along on horseback to collect additional supplies. Some of, the, some of the supplies collected were surveying instruments, including compasses, quadrants, telescope, sextants, and chronometer, camping supplies, including oilcloth, steel flints, tools, utensils, cornmeal, mosquito netting, fishing equipment, soap and salt, clothing, weapons and munitions, medicines and medical supplies, books on botany, geography, and astronomy, maps. Lewis also collected gifts to present to Native Americans along the journey, such as beads, face paint, knives, tobacco, ivory combs, bright colored cloth, ribbons, sewing notions, and mirrors. Lewis entrusted Clark to recruit men for their Corps of Volunteers for Northwest Discovery. Throughout the winter of 1803 to 1804, Clark recruited and trained men at Camp Dubois, north of St. Louis, Missouri. He chose unmarried, healthy men who were good hunters and knew survival skills. The expedition party included 45 souls, including Lewis, Clark, 27 unmarried soldiers, a French Indian interpreter, a contracted boat crew, and a slave owned by Clark named York. On May 14, 1804, Clark and the Corps joined Lewis in St. Charles, Missouri, and headed upstream on the Missouri River in the keelboat and two smaller boats at a rate of about 15 miles per day. Heat, swarms of insects, and strong river currents made the trip arduous at best. To maintain discipline, Lewis and Clark ruled the Corps with an iron hand and doled out harsh punishments such as bareback lashing and hard labor for those who got out of line. On August 20th, 22-year-old court member Sergeant Charles Floyd died of an abdominal infection, possibly from appendicitis. He was the only member of the Corps to die on their journey. Most of the land Lewis and Clark surveyed was already occupied by Native Americans. In fact, the Corps encountered around 50 Native American tribes, including the Shoshone, the Mandane, the Minatari, the Blackfeet, the Chinook, and the Sioux. Lewis and Clark developed a first contact protocol for meeting new tribes. They bartered goods and presented the tribe's leader with a Jefferson Indian Peace Medal, a coin engraved with the image of Thomas Jefferson on one side and an image of two hands clasped beneath a tomahawk and a peace pipe with the inscription, Peace and Friendship, on the other. They also told the Indians that America owned their land and offered military protection in exchange for peace. Some Indians had met white men before and were friendly and open to trade. Others were wary of Lewis and Clark and their intentions and were openly hostile, though seldom violent. In August, Lewis and Clark held peaceful Indian councils with the Odo near present-day Council Bluffs, Iowa, and the Yankton Sioux in the present-day Yankton, South Dakota. <clears throat> in late September, however, they encountered the Teton Sioux, who weren't as accommodating and tried to stop the Corps boats and demanded a toll payment, but they were no match for the military might of the Corps and soon moved on. 
In early November, the Corps came across villages of friendly Mandan and Minotauri Indians near present-day Washburn, North Dakota, and decided to set up camp downriver for the winter along the banks of the Missouri River. Within about four weeks, they built a triangular-shaped fort called Fort Mandan, which was surrounded by 16-foot pickets and contained quarters and storage rooms. The Corps spent the next five months at Fort Mandan hunting, forging, and making canoes, ropes, leather clothing, and moccasins, while Clark prepared new maps. According to Clark's journal, the men were in good health overall, other than those suffering from venereal disease. While at Fort Mandan, Lewis and Clark met French Indian trapper Toussaint Cabineau and hired him as an interpreter. They allowed his pregnant Shoshone Indian wife, Sacagawea, to join him on the expedition. Sacagawea had been kidnapped by Hidatsa Indians at age 12 and then sold to Carboneau. Lewis and Clark hoped she could help them communicate with any Shoshone they encountered on their journey. On February 11, 1805, Sacagawea gave birth to a son and named him Jean-Baptiste. She became an invaluable and respected asset for Lewis and Clark. On April 7, 1805, Lewis and Clark sent some of their crew and their keelboat loaded with zoological and botanical samplings, maps, reports, and letters back to St. Louis while they and the rest of the Corps headed for the Pacific. They crossed through Montana and made their way to the Continental Divide via Levy Pass where, with Sacagawea's help, they purchased horses from the Shoshone. While there, Sacagawea reunited with her brother, Kamawake, who hadn't seen her since she was kidnapped. The group next headed out of Lemmy Pass and crossed the Bitterroot Mountain Range using the harrowing Lolo Trail with the help of many horses and a handful of Shoshone guides. This leg of the journey proved to be the most difficult. Many of the parties suffered from frostbite, hunger, dehydration, bad weather, freezing temperatures, and exhaustion. Still, despite the merciless terrain and the conditions, not a single soul was lost. After 11 days on the Lolo Trail, the Corps stumbled upon a tribe of friendly Nez Perce Indians along Idaho's Clearwater River. The Indians took the weary travelers, fed them, and helped them regain their health. As the Corps recovered, they built dugout canoes, then left their horses with the Nez Perce and braved the Clearwater River rapids to Snake River and then to the Columbia River. They reportedly ate dog meat along the way instead of wild game. <clears throat> the bedraggled and harried corps finally reached the stormy Pacific Ocean in November of 1805. They had completed their mission and had to find a place to live for the winter before heading home. They decided to make camp near present-day Astoria, Oregon, and started building Fort Clatsop on December 10th and moved in by Christmas. It was not an easy winter at Fort Clatsop. Everyone struggled to keep themselves and their supplies dry and fought an ongoing battle with tormenting fleas and other insects. Almost everyone was weak and sick with stomach problems, likely caused by bacterial infections, hunger, or influenza-like symptoms. On March 23, 1806, the Corps left Fort Clatsop for home. They retrieved their horses from the Nez Perce and waited until June for the snow to melt to cross the mountains into the Missouri River Basin. After again traversing the rugged Bitterroot Mountain Range, Lewis and Clark split up at Lolo Pass. Lewis's group took a shortcut north to the Great Falls of the Missouri River and explored Marius River, a tributary of the Missouri in present-day Montana, while Clark's group, including Sacagawea and her family, went south along the Yellowstone River. The two groups planned a rendezvous where the Yellowstone and Missouri met in North Dakota. On July 25, 1806, Clark carved his name and the date on a large rock formation near the Yellowstone River he named Pompey's Pillar. After Sacagawea's son, was, whose nickname was Pompey, the site is now National Monument managed by the U.S. Department of the Interior. Two days later, at Marius River near present-day Cutbank, Montana, Lewis and his group encountered eight Blackfeet warriors and were forced to kill two of them when they tried to steal weapons and horses. 
the location of the clash became known as Two Medicine Fight Site. It was the only violent episode of the expedition, although soon after the Blackfeet fight, Lewis was accidentally shot in his buttocks during a hunting trip. The injury was painful and inconvenient, but not fatal. On August 12th, Lewis and Clark and their crews reunited and dropped off Sacagawea and her family at the Mandan villages. They then headed down the Missouri River with the currents moving in their favor, and this time, and arrived in St. Louis on September 23rd, where they were received with a hero's welcome. Lewis and Clark returned to Washington, D.C. in the fall of 1806 and shared their experiences with President Jefferson. While they had failed to identify a coveted Northwest Passage water route across the continents, they had completed their mission of surveying the Louisiana Territory from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean, and did so against tremendous odds with just one death and little violence. The Corps traveled more than 8,000 miles, produced invaluable maps and geographical information, identified at least 120 animal specimens and 200 botanical samples, and initiated peaceful relations with dozens of Native American tribes. Both Lewis and Clark received double pay and 1,600 acres of land for their efforts. Lewis was made governor of the Louisiana Territory, and Clark was appointed brigadier general of militia for Louisiana Territory and a federal Indian agent. Clark remained well-respected and lived a successful life. Lewis, however, was not an effective governor and drank too much. He never married or had children and died in 1809 of two gunshot wounds, possibly self-inflicted. A few years later, Sacagawea died, and Clark became her children's guardian. Despite Lewis's tragic end, his expedition with Clark remains one of America's most famous. The duo and their crew, with the aid of Sacagawea and other Native Americans, helped strengthen America's claim to the West and inspired countless other explorers and Western pioneers. The story of Lewis and Clark gives us a guide for how to lead where we've never gone before. The first thing we learn from Lewis and Clark is the importance of creating a team that is properly qualified. Lewis and Clark themselves were well-trained, and almost equally so. They then chose men who were properly prepared for the journey. This was later proven by the fact that there was only one death on the trip, despite how treacherous and risky it really was. The opposite of this is something I like to call the tyranny of availability. Many volunteer organizations, like churches and service nonprofits, run on this principle, and here's how it works. The organization identifies a need that needs to be filled. A person comes along who's willing and available. Willing and available does not mean capable, but the person is given the position nonetheless. Now, when a capable person comes along, they're not given the position because it's already been filled. But they can be given a different position for which there's no, there's a need, but for which they are totally incapable. By this method, every seat gets filled in a timely manner, but often by people who are incapable of doing the job they've been assigned. And this doesn't just happen at the bottom. I've seen it happen at the top, like pastors who are given the job because they're willing and available, but completely incapable. This is why I call it the tyranny of availability. This is not how we want to run our businesses, but that means we have to start with ourselves. Are we capable of running the business we envision, or are we merely willing and available? The next lesson is the humility of the leader. It was never Lewis or Clark, but it was always Lewis and Clark. Both of these men recognized that the importance of the mission and the survival of the lives entrusted in their care were far more important than either of their egos. So they checked their egos, put their trust in each other, and worked together, and they accomplished something that ensured both of their names would live on in infamy. Too many would-be leaders begin with the idea that if they won't get all the credit for the success, then they will ensure that nobody does. As Dick Vermeil used to tell his coaches when he was head coach of both the Rams and the Chiefs, Quote, if you need credit, go to a bank. He was very vocal about the fact that he felt that people who need credit for everything they do are the most dangerous people in the organization. 
You root them out and you get rid of them. But if you're on top, then you better start by making sure that person isn't you. The next lesson we can learn is the power of what can be created when people's lives are fully dependent on one another. In the last week, I've talked with several different business owners who told me they were done hiring employees. The reason was because they couldn't find people who truly wanted to commit to the organization, to be there for the organization when it needed them, and to let the organization be there for them when they needed it. Instead, the attitude was merely, take as much as possible while giving as little as possible, and the moment they found an opportunity to make more money doing even less, they would be gone. This might seem like the smart way to live for some, but let me give you an alternative. For most of my professional life, I owned my own office and I was the top dog, so to speak. At times I had employees and at others I worked alone. Then I left all that to go teach at Life University. There I was absolutely not the top dog. I was more like the bottom dog. I was a fish out of water. I didn't know how anything worked or what was expected of me and I had to figure it out along the way. I also took a pay cut. Most people that I know would be baffled as to why someone would do that. The reason is because I know that there's value in joining a team and making it better. I once played in an all-star football game where, where absolute strangers came together for two weeks and left with incredibly tight bonds and stories that I still tell to this day. The football was fun, but it had almost nothing to do with it. The beauty is in the teamwork. I was just fortunate enough to learn that at a young age. But it's the reason I love to form teams in anything I do, because teams do much better work than individuals. Unfortunately, many people today don't want to be on a team if they're going to be the lowest member of the team. I see it differently. I don't mind being the top member of a team if it means I can help to bring other people up, but I love being the lowest member of a team because I know I'm going to learn something. That's how it was when I got to Life U. I began picking the brains of anyone I could, who would talk with me. I'm still probably the lowest member of the team, but I don't even care. I also know that if I learn the lessons in front of me and I do the job well, the money and the position will take care of itself because that's just how it works. If you don't have what you want, it's because you haven't earned it yet. Keep your head down, get to work, and the position and the accolades and reputation will all come to you in due time. One final lesson about Lewis and Clark is that they embodied a spirit of adventure. Can you imagine if they had left with the attitude that the mission was doomed and they would all be dead inside of a week? <laughs> imagine if just one person felt that way and they wouldn't stop talking about it. A good leader would probably shoot that person just to ensure that the rest would survive. Good leaders recognize the corrupting power of what I call loser thinking. I recognized very early in my life as a kid playing football on the playground that the difference between those who consistently won and those who consistently lost was not their talent or ability, but it was generally their way of thinking. Certain people had such a strong allotment of loser thinking that they made it impossible for anyone on their team to be successful. In contrast, I had a friend who was such a winner in his thinking that he made everyone better, and I noticed it because he made me better than I knew I was. I then observed that talent follows attitude. Over the next months and years, those with a winner mentality became more talented, and those with a loser mentality became less talented. I'm sure you've probably observed this in your own experience. Even though I'm extremely optimistic toward people and their potential, I finally come to the realization that it's very difficult to rehabilitate a loser. It's much better to not have them on your team. In most cases, they will destroy your team much faster than you can see any improvement in their attitude. That being the case, I've compiled a list of observational behaviors that while it's not exhaustive, I do believe it helps to define what loser thinking looks like. The first behavioral identifier of perpetual losers is overreacting. Every problem has an appropriate response. Determine the appropriate response and engage as soon as possible. The drama of overreacting wastes time and often leads you further from a solution. Again, I first observed this as a kid, 
I would see people who would overreact to one bad play and it would take them out mentally for the rest of the game. I would see all the time lost from their whining and complaining, or as adults like to call it, venting. I realized I could have the problem solved already if I just got back to work instead of doing all that complaining. The time difference between those two responses would give me a huge advantage that would often make me look much better than I actually was. John Maxwell often gives the analogy that he could beat Usain Bolt in a 100-meter race under one condition if he was given a 90-meter head start. That head start can be created by getting to work while everyone else is still complaining about the problem, or planning as it's often called. The second trait of perpetual losers is procrastination. Again, we get back to recognizing the importance of time and the value of every second. When time is of the essence, pace is more important than talent. When it comes to running a marathon, I've never really thought of marathon runners as talented, except in one area. While they're certainly well-trained, their only real talent is being able to determine the fastest pace that is sustainable for 26 miles. That's a talent we should all develop for our work life. What is the fastest pace at which we can work and still sustain our productivity, quality, and focus? We've all seen the marathon runner who gave a little too much and collapsed before the finish line. What would it look like if that happened to you at work? If we can't identify it, then how will we recognize it if it's happening so we can do something about it? I've been talking to a lot of young and old Gonstead doctors lately, and I can tell you that, in general, the younger generation is seeing patients at a much faster pace than the older generation. You have to ask yourself, is this just because the old guys are slowing down, or do they know something about pace and quality that the younger generation are passing over in favor of higher quantity and more money? Speaking of money, the next quality of loser thinking is a near obsession with ideas to get rich quick. I've often said that the longest distance between two points is a shortcut. The way John Maxwell puts it is that he compares it to an airplane taking off. He often says this, this simple phrase, the bigger the plane, the longer the runway that you need. In other words, big ideas and big businesses need time to get off the ground, and they need to rise slowly. Many people, he will then observe, are merely helicopters. They just take off with no runway, and then they come straight back down. It's the tyranny of the urgent that often causes people to feel like they are always late, and if they don't act now, they'll miss out on the opportunity. Unfortunately, that's how losers are born. Don't worry about what anyone else is doing or has already done. Your own success will be entirely dependent on whether or not you give it the time it needs to come to life. Again, the bigger the idea, the more time it needs to get off the ground. Another behavior of loser thinking is an obsession with looking to the past to predict the future. Listen to me clearly on this one. The only way your past will look like your future is if you remain unchanged. I'm going to say that again. The only way your past will look like your future is if you remain unchanged. To use your past to declare judgment on your future is a self-indictment of your own lack of character. So let's not do that. I've often compared it to driving down the road while staring into the rearview mirror. Would it be surprising to you or anyone else if you got into an accident while doing that? So how can we possibly think that we can drive ourselves into the future we want if we're obsessed at looking in the rearview mirror at all the decisions we could have made instead? As Jordan Peterson says, the purpose of memory isn't to remember the past. It's to extract from the past lessons to construct the future. Based on this statement, we'd have to conclude that if you're stuck in the past and memories of what was or what, what you've suffered, then this is because you failed to learn from the past. If you haven't learned from it, then you're quite likely to repeat it maybe many times over, until you do finally learn from it. I must mention that ignoring the past without learning from it will give you no better fate. You are still likely to repeat it, but without the wisdom to recognize it's even your fault. 
Repeating the past because you refuse to learn from it creates a very unique form of arrogance in the long run. Another symptom of loser mentality is trying to prove you are smart. The worst thing about the modern education system is that it allows you to think like a loser and still succeed. This gives people the false impression that what made them successful in school, even if they were successful in spite of it and not because of it, will also make them successful in the real world. In the real, wor- in the real world, how you do it and the timing of when you do it are just as important as doing the right thing. I've known many students who determine the path to success by obsessively focusing on minutia and details. They tend to believe the same behavior will make them successful in the real world, but it often does the exact opposite. Gary Vaynerchuk has talked about this. He says that the problem with school is that your primary motivation is to avoid the person who's always looking over your shoulder, waiting to tell you that you're wrong. I admit that I've known a teacher or two who derived a little too much pleasure from telling people they are wrong. The consequence is that you develop an educationally induced paranoia. As Gary Vee says, these people often struggle in the real world because this fear of being wrong paralyzes their decision-making and detours them from quickly recognizing their own mistakes and fixing them as soon as possible. Nobody expects you to be a genius, and there are no bonus points if you are. Instead, you just need to be intensely focused on the reality of what is and what you can do to make it better. Along with this comes the loser symptom of overvaluing every decision. John Maxwell says that we overvalue the decision-making process, but we undervalue the decision management process. As he says, successful people make good decisions early and then manage those decisions for the rest of their lives. In contrast, I would say that unsuccessful people focus all energy on the decision and then neglect to manage the decision so it's doomed to fail and then blame others for not helping them to make a better decision or to make the poor decision successful. The ability to make good decisions is so foreign to the educational process that it saddens me to realize we spend countless hours and dollars educating people who are doomed to failure because they have no capacity to make a good decision. Good decisions don't come from your gut. You know what comes from your gut? And it stinks. Good decisions come from good thinking. Think about how many people, when faced with a huge decision regarding a relationship or a business, choose to simply go with their gut. Or some people blame it on their heart because the heart wants what the heart wants. Well, it seems that in many cases, what the heart wants is regret. Because many times your heart or your stinky guts are telling you that you really want something, all the while your brain is screaming, don't do it. I can tell you that when my brain has said, don't do it, and I listened, I have never regretted it even once in my life. The heart and the guts, not so much. Whatever you do, don't default to making decisions with your guts or your heart, but try with all your might to let your brain lead the conversation. I know it's not exhaustive, but I hope this will help you to think like Lewis and Clark and avoid the pop psychology that has invaded our society and often leads to heartache and misery. There's no value in trusting your instincts if your instincts aren't any good. I know that seems kind of cruel, and it reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. I'm sure you've seen it. The one where George decides that if every instinct he's ever had was wrong, then the opposite must be right. While it plays out to hilarious consequences, there's a deep truth hidden in that silly little episode. It's worth thinking about to evaluate whether or not you have good instincts. The value of the past comes from what we can learn from it. I hope this episode will help you to have a blessed week and to explore the possibility of leading where you've never gone before. I don't want to ignore the fact that there's a war going on right now, and I don't just mean what's happening in Ukraine. Leadership is important because right now, people all over the world loathe their leadership. These leaders didn't even have to lead where they hadn't gone before. They simply had to maintain the status quo. But seemingly, none of them could pull it off. People loathe their leadership for good reason. 
In the U.S., we have hundreds of leaders on the national level, not including states, counties, and cities. Of those hundreds, you'd be hard-pressed to name even a handful who do their jobs well. That is a leadership crisis. I'm sure wherever you're listening to this, your country has similar problems. The key to turning this around is to know what good leadership looks like, raise up good leaders, and value leadership enough that its absence is a deal-breaker. That process begins with you, in your office. If we all change our little part of the world, we will eventually change the whole world. People often ask how good leadership will benefit them. I can't tell you for sure what's in it for you, but I can certainly show you all you have to lose and what poor leadership will cost you. Just look around. The chiropractic profession is no different, only on a smaller scale. As Dr. Lopes talked about, there are poor leaders with selfish ambitions and high positions who want to change and define how you practice chiropractic, and they have no regard whatsoever for what the science says. We need a generation of leaders to rise up in our profession who will put the patient first and check their egos at the door. The world needs it now more than ever. Chiropractic needs it now more than ever. Thank you for joining me today. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Thank you.